Section number 12 of The Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily Fuca. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section 12. The British Sailor. On February 9, 1847, Mr. John Lewis Ricardo brought forward the following motion in the House of Commons, that a select committee be appointed to inquire into the operation and policy of the navigation laws. Mr. Thomas Milner Gibson, then Vice President of the Board of Trade, gave the sanction of the government to the motion, and recommended that the committee should be appointed. The proposal was strongly objected to by the Honorable H. T. Lydell, afterwards Earl of Ravensworth, who, in the course of his speech, declared that the object of the navigation laws was twofold. First, to create and maintain the great commercial marine of this country for the purposes of national defense, by which he directly indicated supplies of men, and secondly, to prevent any one other nation from engrossing too large a portion of the navigation of the world. Mr. Ricardo's motion was carried by 155 to 61. This was the beginning of a long and bitter struggle. The whole body of merchants and shipowners, with but few exceptions, were in opposition to the repeal party. One of their strong arguments was that the threatened legislation would practically annihilate the British seamen by the expurgation of the apprenticeship clause, and by forcing the owner, for reasons of economy, to ship as few sailors as the vessel could possibly go to sea with and to choose for such hands the cheapest labor procurable. This opinion was supported by many persons of weight and authority. Admiral Martin, for instance, declared that the merchant service was everything to the navy, and that the navy could not exist without it. He quoted June first, 1794, and declared that Howe could not have gained his victory but for the merchant seamen of this country. He pointed out that the resources of the mercantile marine enabled Admiral Gardiner to swiftly collect forty thousand seamen and proceed with seven sail of the line and other vessels to the west indies he also instanced the case of lord hood and that admiral's occupation of toulon and the seizure of corsica it is notorious indeed that the opponents of the repeal lay most stress upon the injury that abrogation would inflict upon the british forecastle london sent a petition of seventy four thousand signatures Liverpool another 24,700. In these documents the invitation to foreign nations to participate in whatever advantages we possess seems to be considered as an evil light in comparison with the consequences the measure would produce in the supply of seamen to the Royal Navy. A letter written by Sir John Gladstone, baronet, to his son, the Right Honourable William Ewart Gladstone, Member of Parliament, for the University of Oxford, is still extant and the writer, dictating from a bed of sickness, implores his dear son William to consider where will be your boasted nursery that has hitherto manned your navy and protected your shores, and what is to become of your justly boasted wooden walls, if the navigation laws are repealed and a gap made in our legislative barricados, big enough to let in the foreigner. Mr. H. Drummond went further yet. There was a time when they had a national faith, there was a time when they venerated, worshipped even, the statesmen who guided safely the destinies of the country, when they reverenced the magistrates who presided over the administration of their laws, 
when they gloried in the soldiers and the sailors who maintained the greatness of their nation throughout the world, when the noblest credo that they had was Rule Britannica, and when the finest anthem in their ritual was God Save the Queen, by which he meant repeal the navigation laws and the country is doomed. But the most ardent eloquence and signatures in the prodigious array availed nothing. At the third reading of the famous bill in April 1849, the repealers had a majority of 61. Two months later, it passed the House of Lords, and on June 26th, the royal assent was given. The full story of this bill offers some instructive reading at the present time. Nearly forty years have elapsed since the navigation laws fell into dust. Yet in one particular, the controversy which Mr. Ricardo's motion set raging through the length and breadth of the land may be said to be as hot now as it was then. The dreadful misgivings of the shipowners have not, indeed, been verified. It is not necessary to go to the round of the docks and outports to know that free trade has not extinguished the British mercantile marine, but it certainly does appear as if the prophecyings regarding the decadence of the English soldier were not without a certain accuracy. It is not that Jack has been killed by the repeal of those clauses which were designed to foster and multiply him under the old acts. He is apparently no longer wanted. Forty years ago the British shipowner was saying, If you pass your bill, you will oblige us to ship small crews, and since foreign labor is cheaper than native, we will gather into our forecastles the most inexpensive nationalities we can lay our hands on. Norwegians, Danes, Germans, Greeks, men to be fed at the minimum cost, to whom old bread and young weevils will be as relishable as fresh tack and sweet butter to the English seamen. It would be mere affectation and sheer disingenuousness to pretend that much of what was then predicted has not since been fulfilled. For months and months the cry of the British mariner has been waxing louder and deeper. Scores of meetings have been held, resolutions passed, memorials drawn up, deputations told off, promises made and broken. Numerous jacks have been locked up for beating the Dutchmen away from the English shipping offices with horny fists. It came at last to a royal commission on merchant shipping, as clear an echo of the prophetic shout of 1847 as ever rung out of antecedent through the pages of history. Arguments as to whether the English or the foreign sailor was the better man have risen to so great a height, have been so acidulated with temper, that no person but slenderly interested in the subject could imagine to what lengths the controversialists have gone. And how do we stand now? the smoke of the battle having cleared off a bit, in what posture do we find our nautical countrymen? Are they getting ships, or are their lives still a long and hopeless loafing job about the yards? Is the foreigner as much in favor as ever? Have the patriotic instincts of the owner been reached, and does he head the folios of his ledger with Rule Britannica and Hearts of Oak? But what concerns me here is to compare the echo with the cry of which it is the reverberation. What were they saying of Englishmen and foreigners in 1847-49, to 49, and what are they saying now? I have before me two summaries. First, the evidence given before the Commons Committee forty years ago, and secondly, the evidence before the Royal Commission of Merchant Shipping, the first part of whose labours has been but recently concluded. A few extracts from these summaries cannot fail to be of interest at the present moment, to the great body of our English seafarers. 
It is necessary to premise that the terms of the navigation laws required that British ships should carry a certain number of British seamen, according to the tonnage, if foreign seamen were included in the crew. Supposing a British ship to carry foreign seamen as well as British seamen, she would then have to take one British seaman for every 20 tons. As an instance of the fostering tendency of the old laws, a Lascar manned vessel on her return to India was forced to carry out four British seamen for every hundred tons, presuming she took back her Lascar crew. The consequence was that a vessel of 500 tons, say, had to take out 20 British seamen as far as the Cape of Good Hope, because it seems that directly the ship got to the eastward of the Cape, her captain was at liberty to work her solely by Lascars. The effect, then, of the navigation laws, or at least those portions of them which especially referred to seamen and apprentices, was to oblige owners to convert their forecastles into nurseries for the production and development of the British merchant sailor. When, therefore, it came to the shipowners having for their own protection, as they believed, to point to the disastrous results which they foreboded as an inevitable issue of repeal, they insisted with great vehemence and large importation of testimony upon the uncommon merit of the British sailor as he then was. For instance, Mr. George Frederick Young, a well-known shipowner and shipbuilder of London, declared to the committee that he was perfectly certain that British shipping to any considerable extent could never yield a full supply of whole crews of foreign sailors, and that it would never be practicable to bring down a single British seaman to the low level of many foreign nations. This anticipation finds remarkable confirmation in the attitude of the sailor forty years later. Mr. Thomas Boyes Symey, Lloyd's surveyor at Sunderland, supplied some interesting statistics with respect to the difference from the standpoint of economy between Englishmen and foreigners. He mentioned a Prussian bark of 304 tons register, navigated with 12 men, and an English brig of 338 tons, navigated with 10 men and 2 boys. The captain of the Prussian bark received three pounds ten shillings a month, with perquisites, the chief mate three pounds ten shillings, second mate one pound ten shillings, carpenter two pounds, cook one pound ten shillings, and seven seamen at one pound four shillings each, making a total of sixteen pounds eighteen shillings a month, exclusive of the captain's wages. In the English brig, the captain received ten pounds ten shillings a month, mate five pounds, carpenter four pounds ten shillings, second mate three pounds, cook three pounds, five seamen at two pounds fifteen shillings each, and two boys at fifteen shillings each, amounting to thirty pounds fifteen shillings as against sixteen pounds thirteen shillings. These figures clearly showed the policy that shipowners would adopt if all restrictions upon the employment of foreign labor were removed. Mr. William John Hall, a merchant of London, stated that a British ship, well manned and properly worked, can compete with any ship on the face of the world in point of expense, because the seamen are a better class of men and have more work in them than the seamen of any other country. Mr. Money Wigram declared that he had no difficulty in procuring trustworthy men as captains, and having liberally praised the English mariner as a sailor, he added that it would be impossible to man ships with part Englishmen and part foreigners at different wages and different manners of feeding, because it would soon fall into the better class of feeding being given to all. 
Experience has proved the exact contrary. That is to say, the admixture of Englishmen and foreigners has resulted in the Englishmen having been practically dismissed from the forecastle for the economical reasons which have resulted in low wages and low-class feeding. Mr. J. P. Young Husband, of a firm of Liverpool shipowners, said, I do not believe that the masters of foreign vessels are better educated and more skilled navigators than the masters of British ships. The best ships and the best masters in the world are to be found in the British service. Mr. John Alexander Hankey warmly supported the merits and character of masters and men, spoke highly of the respectability of the former, and declared that they had improved in education. Mr. Charles Enderby of the well-known whaling firm found the British seamen in the fisheries quite as good as the Americans, and deprecated the threat of displacing British crews by foreigners. Mr. Mark Whitwell said that he had sailed with men of all nations, but that taking them for all in all, the British seamen surpassed the whole of them in every respect. In a bad night, said Mr. William Richmond, I should prefer English seamen. This was the tenor of most of the evidence, many of the witnesses being the first ship owners in the country, such as Money Wigram, Duncan Dunbar, Mark Whitwell, and the like. In addition to these names, a number of naval officers, such as Admiral Martin, Captain Sir James Stirling, Rear Admiral Sir Thomas J. Cochrane, and others, testified to the worth of the British merchant sailor in language worthy of the high-hearted candor of those days of fighting sailors. We are told to believe, however, that since those times the English mariner has so degenerated that owners can no longer endure to employ him. Ships are sailed on the temperance principle, and yet we are asked to believe that he drinks out and away harder than they did in an age when the hold was full of rum puncheons. We are assured that he cannot keep a lookout, that he skulks during occasions of peril, that the serving mallet and the marlin spike are lost arts to him. And yet in the evidence given before the recent royal commission, the general testimony is distinctly in his favor. Mr. David Brown merely echoes the old anti-repeal cry. There is deterioration, but why? Because, he says, there is no nursery for educating apprentices. Mr. William Andrew, a ship captain, declared that could we have all British seamen in our ships, loss of life at sea would be very much reduced. You always find, he says, that the British seaman goes about his work with a deliberate coolness which is not to be found in any other nation under the sun. The Secretary of the British and Foreign Sailors Society affirms that there is no ground whatever for the statement that there is deterioration in the quality of the British seamen. Mr. George Lidgett, of the firm of John Lidgett and Sons, said there is no difficulty in getting seamen, but that there is a difficulty in always getting a sufficient number of British sailors, and he liked British sailors best. Mr. J. H. Worthington, chairman of the Shipowners Association at Liverpool, said that, as to British seamen, the genuine article is becoming very scarce. When you get him, he is as good as ever. But he omitted to point out that the reason why the English sailor has become scarce is because he is left unemployed, and that the fostering which should be given to him is devoted to the foreigner. Some encouragement, said Mr. James Henry Beasley, who represents the Liverpool Steamship Owners Association, should be given to ship owners to carry apprentices. If that is not done, he adds, I do not see where our future supply of sailors is to come from. Space prohibits me from referring to other witnesses, 
but enough has been quoted to show that the approval of the British sailor won from shipowners and others during the agitation caused by a repeal that was deemed a menace to the whole fabric of our maritime interests. He still continues to extort, after a lapse of forty years, and at a time when the policy of economy has dictated the most ungenerous statements as regards his principles and capacity as a man. It is impossible, then, I think, to refer to the literature of the abrogation of the year 1849, and to consider the existing condition of the English mariner, without perceiving that if the decay which everybody laments of the British sailor is to be arrested, it can only be achieved by recurrence to the spirit of that essential portion of the old laws which provides that our seamen should be cherished and their interests promoted as part and parcel of the policy of a nation whose supremacy at sea must never be threatened or weakened. End of section 12 Recording by Emily Fuca.